And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and delighted to welcome Michael Sapata to the program today. Mike is a former Chicago public school teacher, as well as the founding editor of Make Literary Magazine, and he has recently published his first novel, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, which is published by Hanover Square Press, HarperCollins. In the first section of the book, you refer to Adana Moreau as the Dominicana. Yes. And her husband as the pirate. Why do you choose to name them that way instead of using their given names using in that first names. section? Yeah, that's a great question. Nothing was ever intentional when I started, but when I looked back on it and we went through the process of like, okay, I'm going to edit this and really think about what I had accidentally or done or tried to do. I thought about in the way that history first feels very vague. We have these sort of like before you pursue any idea or think about history. And even when you're learning about history when you're young, it has this vague scope and it doesn't become clear until you dig deeper into it. So we say things like there was a war and there were so-and-so people involved in the war or there, there were refugees and there were so-and-so people involved in the refugees. So I always think of the process by which we earn our pronouns in history. And I don't know if anything was intentional so much as I thought a lot about how history starts for so many of us in that vague territory and then increasingly and hopefully gets clearer and clearer until we get a good idea of what happened to people and then who they were as individuals. But you do name their son, Maxwell Moreau. I do, yeah. And also the publisher. Yes. And the local librarian mm-hmm. who becomes great friends later on. Yeah. You do give those people given names. So I was just wondering there was a, a contrast between the two groups. Yeah. You know, and, and if I think specifically about the characters, I think Adana Moreau, you know, as mentioned to her as the Dominicana when she shows up in America, she's a refugee, essentially. And the pirate, too. Titus is where I named him once and it's much later in the book. But thinking about the history of a very particular type of New Orleans in Gulf Coast history in which for hundreds of years escaped slaves occasionally would end up working with Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean and South American pirates or smugglers. And the research I looked at, it was sort of extraordinary to me that escaped slaves were noted as not only – Entering sort of piracy but becoming well-versed in languages and French. Even occasionally, funny enough, I read in Arabic and obviously all the different sort of linguistic homes for Spanish. You know, different different nations are speaking different types of Spanish. What interested me is that this became sort of this cultural heritage in Chicago where escaped slaves were finding freedom through piracy. And it wasn't often, you know, like sort of the stereotypical sort of storyboard piracy that we think of in our heads. But these were individuals who were finding means and methods between empires who were sort of devastating and sort of stealing from their from their homes and, and finding ways not only to survive but to do it not as captured peoples. And so like when I thought of introducing him as the pirate, I wanted to start with that very sort of amorphous – language and then increasingly get, I hope, paint a portrait of a character who was anything but. So you have him coming from kind of like this maroon community yeah, and then going into the the mix that is New Orleans. But at this time in New Orleans, freedom is really being cut back every year, it seems like, for people from different communities. Absolutely. So it's not dissimilar from today in which you have refugees from Latin America. You have refugees from Europe who find themselves sort of on the shores of the Caribbean in America and ending up in places like obviously like Chicago and particularly in New Orleans for the beginning of the the novel, I think you're navigating this sense of apartheid versus freedom. It's a negotiation that I think oppressed peoples have had to 
negotiate for hundreds and, and hundreds of years. One of the interesting things I thought a lot about was when as the book moves towards the Great Depression, you have peoples from Lithuania in Chicago in the book. You have peoples from Haiti in the Dominican Republic in the book as well as far as New Orleans. And when the when the Great Depression came, a lot of times there was this sense like it's always been this way. The Great Depression is sort of giving people who have not been oppressed a sense of what real economic inequity means. But I did find records in Chicago and New Orleans historical documents where there were people who would say, we've been here for decades already. One of the most important events that kicks all this off is the American occupation of the yes, Dominican Republic starting absolutely. in 1916 for about eight years at that point and U.S. troops murder mm-hmm. Adana's parents. But it's just the latest in a long line of suffering in the country when the Spaniards come and kill Absolutely. the Arawak and enslave Africans. And Absolutely. then whoever the Arawak maybe have come before that. Yeah. It's these cycles. You know, Mark Twain's saying history rhymes, but it rhymes because of the material oppression of empire. And so interchangeably, you have the Spanish and the English and the French and the Portuguese empires. Like so much of the activity of that sort of oppressive theft whether it was imperialism or whether it moves towards sort of this sort of postmodern capitalism. The methods change, but the objectives of the wealthy and the objectives of the ruling class stay the same. And, you know, growing up in Chicago, first generation as Latinx, you are surrounded with other immigrants and, and people who had been refugees and exiles from very particular wars and very particular U.S. involvement in Latin America. So my dad worked as a jeweler. He's a jewelry caster in Jewelers Row in Chicago. And it's a predominantly – actually, funny enough, it's predominantly Jewish and Latino, <laughs> Latinx business. So as a kid, I was always surrounded, whether it was in my neighborhood or at fan, you know neighborhood parties or at my dad's work, I was always surrounded with sort of this labyrinth of stories of exile, including people who had left San Salvador – in the late 80s, Guatemala in the 90s, most recently Honduras. And so when I taught sort of the previous administration's support of like overthrowing sort of a leftist government in Honduras and teaching in Chicago too, I, I taught dropouts for a number of years in Chicago, there would be Honduran students, Honduran refugees in my classroom. And it was interesting looking back at the history of involvement in places like the Dominican Republic in the early 20th century and sort of the banana republic sort of methodology in which the United States government went into, you know, essentially we own Latin America. We're going to do – The Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, yes. It's a dangerous, terrifying doctrine and it hasn't ended. I have Honduran refugees in my classroom and I always thought to myself like this is – not even close to being over. Current American involvement in Venezuela, you can trace our heavy-handed involvement in Chile and Buenos Aires and Ecuador. The United States had a military base in Ecuador up until relatively recently. As a first-generation American, I'm living in (laughs) in this place, growing up in Chicago with fellow refugees and first-generation Americans from places like Iraq and India and Southeast Asia. And these were my friends and I skateboarded with them and we read science fiction books together. But you don't realize till you're much older that your experience as a first-generation American and your parents, even though they were coming from all over the world, were experiencing some of the same repercussions of, I think, American empire. So what effect do you think it had on Adana that she came to the country who killed her parents essentially? Correct. Yeah. I don't think there's like a definitive 
answer for those feelings because I think about the also the people I grew up with where simultaneously you have this empiric government who is is forcing you into exile and refugees but when you show up on the shores we're also people <laughs> you know like there are communities in places that have been there for the longest time in places like New Orleans where for example Dominican and Haitian refugees often ended up in the Marigny in New Orleans which is the first American suburb it's right next to the right next to the French Quarter but you have these communities that were built from the ground up by recent refugees and immigrants and exiles and in those communities which I hoped to portray in my book there is love and support and solidarity and there are people who are fighting for the best things that America could offer in spite of them having to be refugees. And I think in refugee communities, there's constant debate about that. And it could be bitter debate and it could be loving debate and there's no real like political consensus around it in I think immigrant communities. In a tip to her last name from the pirate Moreau, yeah. we have – you know, obviously goes to the island of Dr. Moreau yes. by H.G. Wells. <laughs> and in there, of course, he's trying to shove animals together and create yeah. hybrids that yeah. way. But in the book, we have so many national hybrids that yeah. people from different countries coming together to give us new children of, yeah. of, of different <laughs> yeah. vintages. It was a take and it was almost accidental. I thought of the name first and then I was like, oh. <laughs> but in the sense of multiplicity. I think in the novel, there's the scientific theory of multiplicity. There's the science fiction aspect of parallel universe and multiplicity. But at its core, the immigrant experience is often one of multiplicity. And I like that metaphor that you pulled out of it. Um, I think it came much later after I wrote it. I was like, some things are accidental and they're lovely when they happen that way. Um, Your subconscious is carrying the load too. It's doing the work. The subconscious is doing most of the work. <laughs> Speaking about multiplicity, Adana becomes a fan of science fiction novels. Yes, yes. And uh, she's introduced to them by her friend, Afra. The science fiction of that time, when you went to back to read it to kind of get some yeah. context, how do you think it compares to what we write today all around oh, the world? Oh, such a good question. Ah, oh, I love it. I think sort of the origins of Western science fiction. I have a very dear friend, Mahmoud Saeed, and he's from Iraq. He's an Iraqi refugee, and he's older. He's in his late 70s. So we talk about science fiction, and he said, well, you have to understand, Michael, science fiction started a thousand years ago in Arabic literature. <laughs> and then it gives me all these like amazing examples. But as far as Western culture, it's always been interesting to me that sort of the birth origins of science fiction and Western culture happened simultaneously with – the height of the Victorian British Empire and only accelerated as the empire faced its imminent decline. I think there's some parallels to that as far as what's happening in the United States today and sort of the golden era of science fiction I think was about reconciling with the benefits and the consequences and the terrifying foretold things in science fiction. But I think one of the joys of reading science fiction is I think it's literature on the offensive I think it doesn't shy away from addressing our most sort of sacred ideas about technology and ideals about democracy in our country. And it takes those on directly. And so what I see as far as the complex and wonderful science fiction writing that's happening today globally is that it's doing that without sort of the tentativeness that maybe previous generations had. It's taking on these enormously complex ideals that 
we have as Americans and it's attacking them and it's showing us what we're scared of maybe a couple years before we're scared of it. <laughs> like, everything from social media, which would have made Philip K. Dick insane further. Further, yes. <laughs> further insane. And then what you have I think is this recognition within sort of this, you know, you want to say like classic literary history in America where we're all sort of reconciling end of empire. So you have cli-fi climate fiction, science fiction interchangeably interspersing itself with literary fiction because I think we're at a stage, I might be wrong, where we have to deal with our own Victorian end of empire. So I think literature itself is becoming much more wonderfully complex because of it. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more Adana right now, but I want to come back to the science fiction yeah, absolutely. In, in, in just a, in a second. I can always talk about science fiction. <laughs> well, Adana starts to read these novels and she's inspired to write yeah. her own. So yeah. tell us about The Lost City. It's just extraordinary. The Latin American tradition of fantasy and science fiction without it having been termed a genre – you know, a hundred years ago, and then into the the Latin American boom, which was, I think, by decades beat the American popularity of like genreless or like interspersing genre, because you have these worlds colliding with the Spanish and the Portuguese empires coming to the Americas, and there was an enormous amount of sort of catastrophic things that happened, very similar to the North. You had obviously diseases which wiped out some scientists think up to eighty to ninety percent of the indigenous population, but somewhat different from North America. You have this intermingling of culture and narrative that happened and to this day, indigenous cultures often on the defensive from countries are still integral to society day to day. Like my grandmother was 100 percent indigenous and her stories from what my father tells me were just absolutely extraordinary and they were absolutely a mix of indigenous myth and sort of being iconographic like Spanish stories. To the extent where you have something like this, – this is always funny. You have something like the Duende, which is sort of this like spared animal that in my father's hometown in Ecuador, Santa Fe, would always be blamed for things. And this is outside of Catholicism and it's through indigenous storytelling. And so there's this hybrid forms of narrative that I think someone like Adana Moreau would find in literature when she knows how to read and would – not only sort of be attracted to it but want to bring her whole narrative and, and cultural tradition to it. It's an extraordinary thing and it makes me tragically sad that we don't have that in North America because our empire behaved differently. Both were absolutely terrible but we don't have that to the extent that I wish – that we all wish we could, this sort of cultural narrative of what came before the Columbian Exposition and what came after. And I think Latin America has done an enormous job. And it wasn't until the boom where a lot of people had said our entire 350 years has been a narrative that has not just been the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese Empire. So let's address that. Uh, doesn't Duende also kind of mean like a specialness that you can't quite put your finger on? It, can, it can, yeah, yeah. It was always extraordinary to me because I would go to Ecuador as a kid during summers all the time and I've lived there a few times. So I spent some a great deal of time in the village where my, where my father grew up with family and predominantly my grandfather who was an activist and union organizer. So very materialist, right, perspective but he still carried a lot of these stories. So I, remember, I always remember being 12 and like my cousins just non – who are from Quito, you know, city kids, just nonchalantly blaming things on Duende. <laughs> you know, I'm just like – skater from Chicago. I'm like, what? 
What is Duende? Not me from Family Circus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this. Yeah. In living in Chicago and having people come from all over Latin America and, and Spain probably as well, what did the language differences, the dialect differences between the different countries and the pronunciations, yeah. how, how was that experience for you? Joyful and hard and complex and it still is. So I remember like my father working in Jewelers Row. You know, there, there's people coming from all over Central and South America. Or when we went to neighborhood parties, I would listen and try to suss out the different sort of dialects. And it was very hard for me as a kid. But my dad would explain later. One big example is like I never understood one of my dad's Venezuelan friends would always say, pana, pana. And it's in the book. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was wondering what it meant too. Yeah, and for years I always was like, what is this? What is this? And my dad finally explained to me. He's like, well, you always call your friends dude. Or, you know, you always call them like, you know, like your best friend, essentially. But there's variations of that in Ecuador where they say socio, which means partner, loosely. So there's these words that sort of interchange. And I think one of the most profound things I found was as a teacher later where I had a, a really great group of students from Mexico City who had probably moved when they were like in their early teens and they were in my high school class. And there was like a third of their Spanish that was mind-blowingly amazing to me. It was just working on such a complex degree of slang and verbiage and I just kind of fell in love with it. So I mean even as like you know a teacher in my 30s having students from Mexico City come in, like I was still blown away by all the Spanish that I – I did not know. I did not know. And this makes reading Spanish and translating Spanish such a joy and such a challenge because you have writers from, you know, Bogota who are going to use very different, very specific purposes in their dialect from writers in Quito or Mexico City. Uh, I sort of worship Spanish translators for being able to navigate that. <laughs> yeah. But you were like probably a teacher in Manchester in England trying to listen to students coming in from the Bronx. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just – and not only that but like the sort of linguistic invention and fluidity my students had when addressing very specific needs was always mind-blowing me. There was one student who always said, poca madre, which means essentially like little mother. And I was like, well, oh, why does he keep saying that? Why does he? And I finally had to ask a student. He was like, oh, Mr. Z, don't you know that means like cool? I was like, no. <laughs> I did not know that little mother meant cool. And it, it's just this exciting – I mean to be a, a public teacher and be surrounded by sort of that multiplicity too was always such a joy, um, especially since I grew up with Spanglish but a very specific sort of like Andean – Ecuadorian Spanish. When I lived in Germany, one of the new words for cool at that time was geil, which means horny. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll never understand to the extent like linguistics do, but I'm not, is it a reflection of a globalized, increasingly globalized world, technology, or does it start in neighborhoods and expand from there? Sort of like language surrounding hip hop would be a, good, a really good American, which I grew up with, American version of that. It's just extraordinary how rapid language is. And contrary to so many people who – English-speaking first people, right? Or those people who support terrifying consequences for migrants and the border. You can't stop language. It's enormously powerful. And to see non-Spanish speakers adopt Spanish over the past 20, 30 years – it's so great for someone who is first generation to know that the people in your lives and around you are not telling you to just speak English, but further than that, adopting cultures and sort of transforming it together. 
let's talk about the world that Adana was imagining in the lost city. Yeah. What, what was the gist of the story? So there is this I, – I always say kind of going back to multiplicity growing up biracial is always sort of surrounded by the multiplicity and – I would think someone like Adana who's – first off, New Orleans is like a bubble universe. It's it's, its own uh, extraordinary universe. I thought about how would someone on the shores of New Orleans think about not even America at large but the city of New Orleans with its multiplicity of peoples, its multiplicity of histories of empires that have owned essentially New Orleans for centuries. It's such a good question because I don't know if I have a definitive reason – why that turned into parallel universes, except that's something that I've sort of obsessed about for some some time as being a first-generation American, this idea of what if, right? Like it's a question that I think all immigrants ask themselves again and again and again. What if? What are the consequences of, of being first-generation? And also this idea of like what paths are available to me in this new country and sort of as a consequence of like material inequity, oppression, whether that oppression is language or actually very material, but also the possibility of what could happen in the shores of like a new place or a new world. And so I always think about that question, what if, and what that meant to me as being first generation and what that would mean to someone like Adana Moreau who finds herself on the shores of America and has to figure out how to navigate it and all the different paths available that are either available to her, excuse me, or cut off. And then it becomes quantum, right? Like every decision every decision you think about and every decision you can consider could be a potential possibility. But it's very clear to immigrants which decisions have no output and, and where other people close possibility off for them. So I, I think to a farther degree, immigrants, exiles and refugees are forced to think about possibility more than people who have been here for some time. You mentioned the physicist Hugh Everett III. Yes, yes. Did you see that documentary about him, The Parallel Worlds, Parallel Lives? Yes. Such a beautiful documentary. It's this heartbreaking story of someone who was so far ahead of his time in theoretical physics being like actually made fun of. You know, early theoretical physicists post um, Einstein who had addressed sort of these mathematical conundrums and the possibilities of – an ever-expanding universe and if a universe is ever-expanding, what does that entail as far as not only where does it go but are we bubble universes that are ever-expanding into other ones? And so this is like – he was previous to that but in the 70s, they were ridiculed as sort of like these like – they were exiled. <laughs> you know, they're early theoretical physicists who were finding mathematical models for things like quantum physics and parallel universes were exiled and it was only up until – Fairly recently were the 90s where it started to very much take hold, not for any other reason than the proofs validated themselves uh, when you look at the math and the science of it. so, But I look at Everett as being sort of the grandfather. Imagine having enough foresight and sort of mathematical brilliance and then addressing it with some of the other brilliant colleagues who just laugh you away. It's a classic science story, isn't it? And it's also a classic like artistic story. There are geniuses who can perceive for whatever accidental reason beyond what others can. And the interesting thing about science, though, is that the proof catches up with them. The old thing of uh, first they laugh at you, then they suppress you, then they accept then you. they accept you. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> it's the classic cycle <laughs> of scientific method. Now, I think 
multiple universes is nonsense myself. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and it's because – and it's the language that they use often to kind of explain this. You yeah. Know, to, you know, there's a universe where you're wearing a red shirt today. And yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And to think that human decision-making is – is anything in the grand scheme of the universe yeah. important? So, yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. Because you know, I think of like every possibility of every subatomic particle, every neutrino, yeah. every just the possibility of position. If you go into Heisenberg's, yeah, 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 uncertainty. All of these things could be happen, and in my weird, non-scientific, yeah, BS cosmology <laughs> yeah, of the yeah, universe, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's that when. When the possibility becomes actuality, uh-huh. that is what like provides motion to the universe. Got it's it. all the possibilities collapsing down into one, and it, and it shoves the particle mm-hmm. onto its next position because we're observing it. Yeah, so, yeah. So like that, I think that would be. And again, I'm not a scientist, but it's my understanding that the possibilities collapse when we observe, which is fun for a writer to think about. We have one Earth and one possibility to contest with, which was in the novel. I wanted Javier, which Saul's best friend, addresses that. Very fact that, you know, Saul, you're obsessed with parallel universes. You read them in science fiction. We're out here hunting down a theoretical physicist. But he's a journalist, right? So he has that material mind, which is like the history that we have to contest with is this one, the one in front of us. But I was then thinking about the parallel worlds being a great metaphor for yeah. different societies, different cultures, yeah, yeah. different communities, and then down to – Behind you, these bookshelves. Yes. Each one of those books represents a different universe. It's an entire world. And each one of us is our own universe in its way. Yeah. And that we see things differently than everyone else. We are yeah. not experiencing the same thing everyone else is. And I, so we get into metaphysics in that way. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think regardless of the science, that sort of thought process, which sort of expands relativity, is that it helps you think about your own decision-making process, right? If I'm thinking about multiple possibilities for my own life and my own family – Whatever one I decide is the one that is this reality. When you open a book, I mean that is whether you're five or 95 when you open a book and when you fall into a good book, there's nothing like falling into another world. My son, who's a little bit more than two and a half the other day, we were reading this book about dragons love tacos. (laughs) It's just a great fun book about these dragons who love tacos. He got a little upset like towards the end. We were having such a joy reading it and I was like, what's wrong, my dude? And he – said he wanted to go inside the book. And this is this is one of those things people tweet where you're like, come on, kids don't say that. And then he he did. He like was upset that he couldn't go inside the book. And I'm like, well, this is a beautiful moment. And it's also like – it's also how I feel as a 40-year-old parent. When I find a book that I become immersed in and we have the linguistic obviously capability as adults to feel immersed in it, it's a joy. Like the second thing I thought of after he said that was like, I want to reread Don Quixote. That book out of all others I've ever read had, it just gave me the most childhood immersion and joy. And it's profound that the human brain does that and attaches itself to story. So the metaphor of parallel universes as a library is not only the most happy thought, but also like Borges, right? He also he like spent like half of his like writing life trying to explore that very exact idea. Well, I have something to show you out in front of our library here. We have the sculpture that runs quite a bit of the side of the library 
about kind of like the evolution of human knowledge from the cave paintings at Lascaux oh, all wow. the way up to computer code. Oh, I want to see that. And yeah. there are uh, there's a quote from Borges oh. about the library. Oh, and, I have to see that. <laughs> and also a quote from 2001: A Space Odyssey. Oh my God! It's oh stars. my God! Who was the amazing person who decided to do that? Uh, his name is Brad Goldberg. He's an artist from Dallas, Texas, who does these huge public installation. Oh my God! Pieces. And it's just fabulous. You walk out of our door here at the stations, and you see, oh my God, it's full of stars. Oh, that is I, – I mean, I, I, I have to see that. <laughs> That's amazing. We are back with Adana Moreau. We're still mm. in the first chapter of the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good talk. <laughs> we'll talk about recursive. <laughs> good book talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is a very Latin American and Jewish narrative sort of tradition. And she has written her first book, The Lost City, to some acclaim. Mm-hmm. And she is then in that sophomore position to follow it up. And yeah. she has a, a book called A Model Earth. And she becomes ill. Yeah. So what happens with her family and, and her work at this point? So she, shortly before she passes, she destroys it. You always hear these stories about Latin American and Russian <laughs> writers. Who do that. So she destroys it and without giving too much away, her son is maroon. The father has to leave and look for work after she passes away and he travels throughout Sort of Central America, Midwest ends up in he ends up in Chicago. The pirate ends up in Chicago, very very unmoored from the ocean, and so this kind of leaves Maxwell Moreau living with a very close family friend, which in the novel is we call him Cesar once, but he is the uh, old man pirate. You know, his father in Chicago finally settles sometime later and says, "Come live with me," and and so he goes and he, he goes to attempt to look for his father. But the story itself sort of fades from history physically fades from history because it was destroyed. And so in, in the novel, in the second chapter, when we find Saul Drower, a hotel concierge in Chicago, finds in his grandfather's things after his grandfather's passing, his grandfather's name is Benjamin, finds a 920, oh, I need to remember correctly, I believe 924-page tome written by Adana Moreau. So it becomes sort of this literary mystery spanning 80 years I think it falls in the exact right hands because, of course, Saul is like obsessed with science fiction and he shared that with his grandfather. And so the core, I think, of the novel is is tracing that literary mystery back to how can this sequel that was purposely destroyed find itself 80 years later in Chicago. Now, was there a writer used kind of as an antecedent, uh, an inspiration for Adana Moreau? I really like this idea of lost manuscripts. I wrote something about it recently to books that almost were lost to history. This idea of so much more history and so much more narrative goes missing or forgotten. Like what the slices of history that we have, whether it's in a history book and our own personal sort of family narratives, the stories you hear from your grandparents and parents, it's just a fraction of a fraction of what actually happened. And so I've always been interested in like when you start the process of trying to decode or make sense out of history. And I'm not a historian, but I've been fortunate enough to like talk to a few historians. And there's this material process by which you're analyzing from a ideological perspective or sort of like a theoretical perspective. But for a novelist, I always looked towards how are you reclaiming any amount of history when so much of it is gone simultaneously to this, that's like kind of the theory behind it, but simultaneously to writing the book, and this was also completely accidental, I found out that my great-grandfather in Ecuador, who was a political exile, was also a secret poet. I mean, he had founded so this. So it's like Javier's great-great-uncle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a real writer. 
Javier's. And it was part of something called the decapitated generation in, in Ecuador. We lost them very young in the early 20th century because a few of them had tragically committed suicide. But they were a real uh, literary cadre <laughs> during that time. But during this time, visiting my grandfather, you know, the book took some seven years to write. And during this time, visiting my grandfather, he had offhandedly mentioned to me that his father wrote poetry. He saw him scribbling all the time and no one knew what it was. And he, so because he was a leftist exile and because he founded this village, I think if I had to place any bets on it, that he was unwilling or, or actually couldn't show his poetry due to the political climate of the time. You know, we take that for granted in the United States. But to be in exile and write poetry and have that published would have been likely dangerous for him. And then nonchalantly, my grandfather too mentioned that he had a, a book of poetry somewhere, a journal that he had handwritten. And I was like, Abuelito, where is it? <laughs> and he didn't know. And he, he made a earnest effort looking for it and he couldn't find it. I asked my uncles, I asked my aunt. I found a historian in Quito who was trying to trace the history of Santa Fe, the small village who basically just said, if you find it, I want it. <laughs> so I believe he was a graduate student. I looked in my grandfather's farmhouse, asked people in the village, and, and while people knew that he like could often be seen scribbling, which is like almost a very like Gabriel Garcia Marquez thing. It's weird <laughs> to think about as you know as a first generation coming back to Ecuador and hearing these stories. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it for years and years. I couldn't find it. And I was just about to give up. But my parents recently, this past August, went to visit my grandfather who was turning 100 for his 100th birthday. I could go. My second son was to be born in about two weeks. My parents brought the advanced copy of my novel to my grandfather. I think he was moved or it jostled something in his memory. But within that same week of his 100th birthday, him and my parents and my uncle found the journal from my great-grandfather. And it was in an old office in an old building, sort of surrounded by newspaper articles that my grandfather had just placed them there. My grandfather has saved every newspaper because he was a union organizer and farmer and he helped organize the National Truckers Union. And so every victory or loss or battle or fight that was mentioned in the newspapers, he kept. And it was just like too much of an accidental metaphor that he found his father's journal of poetry in those papers, but we found it. And so have you read it? So my parents painstakingly copied it <laughs> page by page. So I have a copy of it in my home in Chicago. And my son was born. So in between a lot of sleepless nights, I've been really attempting my hardest to look at the poetry, translate it. Some of it's very sentimental. Some of it's very tragic. And to be quite honest, some of it's quite good, which was like a very happy surprise to me because you never know when you go digging around for ghosts. <laughs> um, so I have this 400 plus page copied journal with his thoughts and you know journal entries and a lot of poetry. I don't know how long this will take, but I'm really committed to kind of reading it all. And it's also written in this kind of like Victorian flourish handwriting that makes it hard to read. I've enlisted a friend who's a historian and I've listed, enlisted two friends who are translators to do it justice because I don't think my translating abilities are nearly up to par. For it. But we found it. Um, and this happened simultaneously to writing and finishing the book and mimesis, I think, <laughs> is what they call it. <laughs> it's a metaphor for in that we lose these historical documents yeah, yeah. so much, but we ourselves lose so much of our history. We forget we so many things throughout the course of our lives that very little we even retain of what happened. 
it's one of the greatest tragedies I think of being a human is that when you pass or when someone you love passes, the memories you don't have of them, all the other multiplicity of memories are, are gone. And so we're constantly contesting with memory. And there was just a lovely quote Saul was thinking after the passing of his grandfather. He should remember his grandfather accurately. He should remember him as much as possible about the man who raised him, even though remembering anything always brought the consequences of its own and forgetting could be a type of gift. Yeah. I just love that passage so much. Thank you. I think when you go looking for history, now you, and you, particularly family history, you, you never know what you're going to find. It's both equally painful, I think, to think about the memories that are lost, but also what would forgetting entail? Do we forget like maybe the bad ghosts or do we forget maybe the tough times we had? There's no like one visceral or emotional response when someone passes and we all grieve in very different ways. But for Saul, I think again he's thinking about the possibility of both forgetting and remembering <laughs> at the same time. So thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored that you had pulled that quote. Now, you talked about history and he remembers his grandfather talking to a woman who had been from Prussia and yes, Prussia yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But then the double irony that his grandfather lives on Humboldt Boulevard yes. and Humboldt being probably the Prussian who will live in history the, the most <laughs> with his name spread most wildly oh my around God, the world. I'm so glad. <laughs> that is a total lovely accident. <laughs> I'm so glad you found that. And, I'm, well, I, and also I thought Sal Bellow's Humboldt's Gift, which is set in Chicago. 100%. Yeah. And so I, all that was coming together when it I was reading it. It gets even more where Humboldt was the primary um, – Explorer, geographer in uh, Ecuador, Latin America. Uh, Latin American. He, he made a trip up into America as well. In so the in Ecuador, United States. Yeah, in Ecuador there's things named Humboldt. And I'm like, this is <laughs> this Humboldt is surrounding my life. And that's very particular to these great American cities, Chicago, New York, New Orleans, in which by the time people show up and have their families, the places they have grown up, and, and this is very particular in Eastern Europe too, have, have disappeared. The languages that they spoke maybe are, are in the process of disappearing and you know, especially between World War One and World War Two, like countries popped in and out of existence, like bubble universes in a sense. But people had very serious and material memories of what their childhood is and I, for some reason I became very interested in the collapse of the Prussian Empire because of sort of the – sort of the Frankenstein horrors that happened some decades after that and – the quick turnaround on, on forgetting and erasing cultures. I think the Germans and obviously Nazi Germans spent a, just an enormous amount of effort erasing the previous reality of the Prussian Empire and then really quickly inventing a new one, like to the extent like the history books that were produced and written and given to children, we're talking between one to five years. There was just this flourish of we're inventing a new history. And it's mind-boggling to me that reality could be so fully erased and then invented for horrific reasons. And again in the Soviet Union with uh, Trotsky disappearing from so many of the textbooks Absolutely. and history books. But I lived in Germany for a bit and I lived in a house that had actually been uh, kind of an old age pension for Jewish people. Oh, wow. And they didn't get around to taking the, the legend off the building wow. in Hamburg. But also Hamburg has one cemetery and it's uh, – uh, is it also Friedhof? It's, it's Friedhof means cemetery over there. Uh, but it's like one mile, mile square. Oh, wow. And you have a lease on your spot for 99 years and if your descendants don't oh, so renew your lease, they dig you up and you go into oh, the, my God. the crematorium. Wow. Um, but – a lease on the afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, wow. Uh, well, and, and probably by that time, people have forgotten you. Yeah, yeah. But 
for soldiers who were on the German side in World War II when they were buried in the cemetery during the war instead of a cross like yeah. they have at Arlington National Cemetery okay, yeah, here yeah. or a Star of David or even a Crescent. Yeah. I guess there are probably a few Muslim soldiers as well. But they put the swastika, the Hakenkreuz really? at the top there. Oh, wow. And they went through after the war oh and God. chipped out every Hakenkreuz. So there's just like this empty circle at the top of the soldiers' oh, graves. Oh, my God. So they are physically – Erasing ghosts, physically erasing well, people. Yeah, the, 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 the swastika is just beyond verboten there. Uh, you you, you oh, just cannot course. have it anywhere unless Absolutely. it's in a historical context. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is an impacted material and metaphorical thing, erasing – God, erasing people's memories. And you can think how tragic that would be for people who would show up to visit family. I think about it too in the context. I think one of the enormous benefits and one of the wonderful things about studying both history and science – Fiction is sort of the impact the past and the future has on the present or, or how we think about the present. So we have textbooks written today for American children that erase. Oh, the Texas. Which is where they mm-hmm. – taking the word slavery out of textbooks. And so many textbooks, just the way companies work are based in – textbook companies, so many are based in Texas. Yeah, Texas and California produce the two states that drive the textbook market Absolutely. in America. Absolutely, yeah. So we have – I remember thinking as an early English teacher and then later I had taught in film. But the textbooks in English and, and a lot of American classrooms coincide pretty closely with the historical textbooks. And so I was talking to history teachers. So I had to make a very early decision as a teacher, you know, being first generation and reading through sort of what was offered in these English textbooks to never use a English textbook. And I had very supportive principals who not only agreed with me but also made it a point to bring it up with all teachers that if they had any issues with textbooks that we would think of alternative ways to build our curriculum. One of my teaching gurus and, and close friends, Ed Peacock, you know, it, and it sounds like a cliche, but when you put in practice, it's an enormous amount of work, and it's really important work for students. Is that you start with the students' narrative um, because of the multiplicity of American culture, and especially with recent influx of immigrants and and, and you know kids from Honduras and, and Mexico and Central America, South America. Largely, their stories are not reflected at all. It was a pretty quick decision I made as a young teacher at twenty two, twenty three to just abandon the textbooks and start with the students' stories. So Saul, who is our next major point of view character, it's mid-2000s in Chicago. He's in his early 30s. His grandfather has just passed away. His grandfather raised him because Saul's parents were murdered when he was very young as well. And the topic of Israeli politics is lightning, (laughs) right, regardless on whatever side. But largely, I think Saul's grandfather, Benjamin, at some point, there's a nod that he makes essentially to the fact that whether it's Israel or the United States or the Spanish Empire, that there are people who become obsessed with sovereignty and borders. And what that entails is even though Saul's parents are, are tragically murdered, it's a direct consequence of this like constant climate in the Mideast where obsessions with centuries and thousands of years of sovereignty lead to just direct oppression. Saul, who is you know exiled in the shores of Chicago, so to speak, and and of course his grandfather is a history teacher and historian, and one of I think the most poignant parts as far as Saul's grandfather, the history that he has somewhat buried for Saul is his parents' lives, and I think being a parent, I'm a parent, 
I think regardless of your profession or your sort of conceptual and material ideas about history, when you lose someone, I, I can't imagine something more painful. So it was an interesting idea to me in talking to historians that when they talked about their own lives and own losses, how some of it was purposely omitted. They wanted to forget. Forgetting was a type of gift for them because their entire lives are spent studying the past. Because in our personal tragedies, how can we go on if we don't forget at some point? It's a very – yeah. The, the, the first day that you don't remember your parents passing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a liminal space. I, you know, I think even another character says in the book a woman who is combing the Chilean desert for remains of her family. There's this liminal space between the future and the past and you can't live in the past for, for too long. When I read that section, I had such the strongest sense of deja vu that recently oh, really? I had heard of people combing the South American deserts. Yeah. In the Atacama Desert to this day, people look for their loved ones and their remain ones. And, and Pinochet was one of the cruelest, monstrous rulers in, in Latin America at this time. He specifically monstrously disappeared people in the ocean and in the desert, which is a monstrous thing to do, obviously – but also I remember reading somewhere saying one of the reasons he did it in the desert because he knew the remains would stay there to remind people that he was right. It's just – it was almost too much to read. It's, it's just so bizarre that to go to those lengths to kill someone, especially then to keep the families in the dark about the death. Absolutely. What was the point of that extreme cruelty if not to then exhibit that extreme cruelty? Absolutely. And take monstrous joy in it. And, and Pinochet, I remember reading up until his deathbed, was purely convinced he was correct. And it was hard for him not to think that when you have consecutive American administrations telling him he was correct, which is a whole other world to contest with. <laughs> And now we have the president's lawyer saying if he does it for the national interest, it's OK. Absolutely. But the national interests are so <laughs> – so, exactly. It, but it is that same logic, right? It's the same logic of Pinochet saying I was – it is terrifying when an individual – and that's what sort of fascism in, is, is when an individual tells you that they embody the state. What is the Louis Fourteenth? L'état similar. Oh, like yeah. That. Yeah. I don't remember the exact phrase, but yeah, the, the embodiment of not only the sovereign state, but sort of the holy state when you go back to the kings. And what I find interesting too is that then that process convinces everyday citizens to then embody the state. So if you're like, you know, if you work for the state and you are enacting the desires or the objectives of the state, you obviously take on the role of the state. But what's interesting to me is that when everyday people, you know, from workers to the very wealthy, they become convinced that their behaviors also embody the desires of the state. And that's when I think you get into very dangerous territory. And speaking about a Latin America during Pinochet's regime, those people not dissimilar to everyday people who lived in Germany during, during World War II – not only took on this like skin of the state, but found themselves almost responsible for carrying out the state's desires and its most horrific objectives. You know, the, the banality of evil and, and you can get into some pretty <laughs> metaphysical and, and complicated human sort of psychology. But I, 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 thinking historically, I, 
I'm fascinated by the process by which uh, just a normal everyday person can take on this terrifying role from the top bottom. Of and it. it's in every one of us. It's in every one of us, yeah. And we just haven't found the motivation yet that would turn us into those monsters. Correct. And also quite extraordinarily, the opposite happens. In Chicago, one of the most – this is just the most recent thing is there's a lot of debate on ICE and current immigration and so forth. And wherever people fall politically, I think they have to ask themselves, am I supporting the state or am I going to be put in a position to have direct conflict with it or at least criticism of it? But I remember more recently in Chicago this past fall where there was this – I believe the president had said that there would be like ICE raids in, in some major American cities, one of them being Chicago. Organically and then very materially, with very material consequences, I saw people in my neighborhood and in close neighborhoods, councilmen and councilwomen organizing ICE watches on bikes. And I remember my alderman. I was outside. I was just hanging out with my baby. <laughs> um, and I remember my alderman riding his bike, followed by like 20 other individuals, a multiplicity of people from all different backgrounds on their bikes, patrolling to make sure that if there were any instances of ICE raids, that there would be direct consequences. And I, I thought to myself that if people embody the state, they also embody resisting it organically. I thought it was one of the most profound, like recent things to just to witness. And it is encouraging a bit that we do have people standing up and speaking against things they find unconscionable. Yeah. And I do think that one of the most beautiful things is that you do have Americans who have been here for some time willing to do so with standing in solidarity with recent immigrants. Because as we talk about sort of the horrifying embodiment of the state, you also have an enormous amount of just wonderful, beautiful people who are willing to sacrifice their own sovereignty, even the respect that they might be not given based on their decisions to stand in solidarity with others. And I saw, we saw that recently also in the, in the Chicago teacher strike, which is Chicago teachers are one of the most diverse professions in, in America from people from all over the world. And so it's extraordinary to see that there are people who are willing and are right now doing that. And the fact that they were protesting and striking for the students, not necessarily for pay raises for themselves, Absolutely. but for the, yes. the, the students. Which was so confounding to the professional class that runs the city because in their mind, the self-interest of any job is more direct beneficial gain for the worker, for, you know, for the professional class. Like, oh, we're, we're going to give you a pay raise. Now it's time to go back to the classroom. But something quite extraordinary happened in which teachers were saying, this is actually for our schools and our communities. And when you come into our classrooms, the need is very apparent for more nurses and counselors because, you know, students are coming in with needs of inequity. And so, of course, the professional class in Chicago who often causes that inequity, it was ludicrous and confounding to them that just throwing money at the problem didn't shut everybody up. You know, my wife's a public school teacher and she was on maternity leave, so she wasn't able to physically go on strike, but she was there supporting the school every day outside of the strike line, bringing food, helping parents. I had taught in CPS for a number of years. And so during this time, it was it's just one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever experienced in both strikes is that you have communities that come together, fight together. There's the complicated ways in which you create those solidarities and it's never perfect and people argue and there's debate. 
but at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're fighting for very material things for students and families. And so not to get too much in the weeds of it, but I saw that most when our mayor had threatened to cut off our health insurance. And the response to that was very painful. We have families who have medical needs, including my own. And so to threaten that health insurance is very painful and it didn't come to that. But the fact that that was allowed to even be thought about, what you find yourself in is you find yourself in direct confrontation with a professional class that doesn't care about the well-being of thousands and thousands of families, including mostly including the students and teachers have. I say all that because the beautiful process by which we see solidarity takes an enormous amount of work. But to see it, especially in the political climate today, is more than encouraging. So let's go back to Saul. And his grandfather has asked him for one last favor. Yes. <laughs> yes. Action to take on his yeah, part yeah. is to mail a package to Argentina. Yes. And so – the package comes back. Yeah. What's in the package? In the package is the 900-plus page manuscript, A Model Earth, which is a Donna Moreau's sequel that we have read that she had destroyed some 80 years previous. I always think about the simple asks that our parents and <laughs> grandparents ask us to turn into journeys <laughs> unto themselves. And so then Saul, of course, who – is in this liminal space too, right? He he's working at a hotel concierge. He likes it. He likes his boss, but he um, can I can I read a oh a absolutely quote here real quick? For the first time in my life, I have something to do rather than nothing. I have to find Maxwell Moreau. Yeah, it's not only this motivator for him; it's this sense of like his history is quickly disappearing with the memory of his grandfather, and so he does take it upon himself to to finish this last task. And I thought it was so appropriate that he works at this boutique hotel called The Atlas. Yeah, yeah. And now he has to take the yeah. model Earth on his back, on yeah. his shoulders. <laughs> he has this task that he actually has to do. But it's yeah. like Atlas holding up the world. <laughs> he has to put the model Earth on his back and then get it, it to where it needs to go. It is an ordeal. You know, like so many writers just fascinated with the Odyssean ordeal and, and all the, you know, the adventure story. At the core of the adventure story, there's so much reflection and fun that can be had. But I think for Saul, I think because he has no one left – you know, he has his very close friend Javier who's likely the only person in his life that he could talk to or reach out with these things. Like he has no one left. So I think fulfilling this last task for him was was a way to jostle him out of this liminal space. And I, I think when we lose people too, again, we either decide to forget or to discover. Later on, they're in a, in a difficult situation and Javier and Saul are together and – Saul accuses Javier of being addicted to disasters. Yeah, you know, I had I had this great opportunity to just grab a few drinks and coffee with journalists in Chicago, with it being such like you know a center of journalism and foreign correspondence. And I thought of first the personal story, kind of like Studs Terkel, right? When you talk to people, listen, find out what the story they want to portray their self portrait is. It's one of the most amazing things to be a writer and to be able to just listen to people's stories. But simultaneously to that, I believe there is this, this media addiction that's accelerating to disaster. And when there is a disaster and whether that disaster is political or when it's real, you know, the media turns into this like swarming, flying termite <laughs> sort of like sensibility where we're going to swarm in. We are going to make as much money possible telling a very generalized story of what this disaster means and then we're going to go away and we're going to go on to the next one. 
And I think you know Naomi Klein expresses that pretty well when she writes about disaster capitalism. And the reason why the media does this is because it's following the needs of disaster capitalism, which does the exact same thing. When there's a disaster, even before often humanitarian needs come in, you have corporate needs that come in first. Right. But in that, do you think they drive the demand by supplying those images or that our human need that is drawn to the horrific yeah, is what enables that to happen? That is such a good question. I do think humans are drawn to the horrific. And, you know, we're constantly contesting with like our own mortality. And if it's happening elsewhere, it's both a sigh of relief and also terrifying. Um, well, I mean, we are hardwired to notice danger and be absolutely. very intent, focused on dangerous things. And that is one of the most I, – oh, I, I agree with that so much because I also think that the concept of language and storytelling emerging in sort of human nature over the past million years simultaneously I think is very much that. Like if we're anticipating disaster, if we put on virtual reality goggles and, and try to think about what would happen to us, it's a point of empathy. It's, it's the opposite point of empathy where you can create prejudices. But it is this like very survival-based thing. That's such a good question because it's like the chicken or the egg, right? Like are we drawn to disaster and so like we accelerate these stories in the media about disaster or does the needs of capital accelerate it? I don't know, but it, I want to read a book about that. <laughs> it's like an amazing, it's but, an but amazing if, question. But, but if we look in our past, you know, I've done many interviews with novelists and even narrative nonfiction authors yeah. about trials and true crime things that happened in the early 20th century. Oh, yeah. And just the dozens of reporters that would be there. Oh, the, yeah. You know, do, dozens, if not hundreds of column inches every day devoted yeah, yeah, to these yeah. trials. I mean, it had everyone on the, the edge of their seats. Yeah, it was history so, of yellow journalism. Yeah, well, it was just cable news in a yeah, different yeah, matter. Yeah. So, oh my God, that's so good. I think the point at which it sort of like becomes even more dangerous, like, you know, if this is part of human nature, is the point in which the narrative of disaster is used against the victims. That might be something new that capitalism introduces in which that we're going to, of course, we're going to read about and we're going to make our own generalizations about and we're going to have our own empathies for people in these stories. But the point at which we are materially benefiting from the victims, I think, is what colonialism and capitalism does that might be unique to the human story, disastrously so. Naomi Klein, I think, does a good job of laying out how that happens. But I'm particularly interested in your question of <laughs> the chicken and the egg and like how does like a reader who sits down at 6 o'clock with a newspaper or goes on Twitter, how do they interpret that for their own sort of narrative needs as they go about their day? Further on, as artists explore these topics, yes, uh, and they may benefit financially from yeah. presenting their works to the public, which is a huge debate right, right now. Right now, yeah, American dirt, yeah, yeah, especially, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've thought about this a lot, especially being Latinx and growing up around stories of exile, and as we talked about previously, and growing up around refugees and my my father's own story coming to this country in the 70s. And I do have to take it back to Studs Terkel. When you look at a piece of work or you look at a piece of art that... You're from Chicago, after all. It's always going to go back to Studs Terkel. <laughs> so one of the most extraordinary things he did, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is Division Street is a seminal work of American literature and hard times. And when you listen to his radio episodes, his extraordinary ability to get people to paint their own lives, listening to those or reading those as, as a novelist is just mind-blowingly good because 
what it reminds me, um, regardless of sort of the market and the publishing industry, is that the very first thing you do when you close your office door, when you're at your kitchen and your kids are screaming and you're trying to write out a few ideas, or they just want to play, which I always play. <laughs> I always put the computer down. But the very first question that you have to contest with is, am I listening? And am I listening to those people around me? Am I listening to my own story? Am I listening to my own family? And when you're writing about others, and I truly have very minimal to no issue with people writing about other people from different backgrounds, I think that comes from being biracial. So when people say, stay in your lane, my first response is, I, I don't have a lane. You know, I could write novels for my sisters the rest of my life because <laughs> we're the only ones with the same experience. But I think if you're going to do that, like some of the best journalists in American history and like Studs Terkel and some of the best novelists is that your primary – I don't even want to say re responsibility but a primary or sort of artistic process that I think could help lead the way for you is to listen. From what I've read and from how the publishing house has sold the book itself, it's not a book that had listened very much. And so then you get these broad strokes of Latinx people – the anger at the book itself, I think, when it's handled in a very like – when we talk about these processes of art and listening and empathy and what it does or what it attacks and the stereotypes involved, I think some of that frustration and anger can be valid. But I also think the interesting thing is that look at the conversation it's creating. For one of the first times I can recall, you have Latinx writers and editors who are themselves debating about what representation in novels – can look like. But I do think regardless of anyone's background, if they listen to Honduran refugees, if they have friends and I think when you live where she does like in a place where if you're isolated or not, like it's quite easy today to make friends with other people. And I hate to simplify it to the degree where make friends and then you'll be a better storyteller because it's not that simple. But the the act of listening to people's stories and allows you as a writer to sit down and then contest not with what you assume or think about other people and sort of the stereotypical broad strokes that will happen if you assume too much. But if like Studs Terkel, you're willing to sit in a laundromat with like one of your neighbors for three hours and just listen to them. It's one of the most profound joys you could have as, as an artist and I think one of the most important. In the discussion that I've been reading on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. That it seems that there's this righteous rage that yeah. is aimed at the capitalist system that has been yeah. focused onto this one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have cultural artifacts. And I think one of the consequences of having material inequity and a lack of power is that it's very difficult to find places to process and attack the power. Cultural artifacts, especially in America, where everything should be or has to be entertaining. Quick side note, I remember Arthur Miller, I watched this documentary on him recently where Someone had asked him because he, he was going through the Red Scare in the 50s and how that affected artists and writers. And he said that in America, you have to be entertaining. Even our fascists have to be entertaining. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. But going back to the outrage, when you don't have a material process by which to funnel that outrage, if you don't see the direct benefit of your life and you see sort of day-to-day -day oppression, cultural artifacts for better or worse become sort of the tinder for that. But my question is, especially being Latinx and having been in a union for most of my professional life, and is what's missing materially in which our lives can be not only better represented, but also give us the opportunities 
to represent them ourselves. So when we talk about the publishing and we talk about gatekeepers and always sort of the, the corporate response, whether it's universities or publishing houses or companies, is to open the doors to diversity and hire someone who's like you know a diversity manager or try to get people in. But that's not working and it doesn't work because the material inequity that exists before anyone could even apply to a job is there. Well, yeah, I've, I've talked with friends that the publishing industry is probably one of the reason, many reasons why it's so white is that the jobs pay so poorly on the lower end of Correct. the industry. You and can't so sustain on, yourself. Only people who have generational wealth Correct. can take these jobs and they become the gatekeepers. Yeah. They're the ones reading the slush piles. And, mm. and then we hear, we end up hearing the same stories or we end up hearing the stories that, you know, there's huge debate in communities and writers of color of what kind of stories are being told is those where you have sort of the extraordinary person person who escaped their material conditions. And whether I think you're on the right or on the left, you're still looking at a bootstrap story where you're focusing your narrative on somebody who was so special as to escape the material conditions or so. A couple of years ago, people would laugh when they say this and it doesn't happen anymore, which is which I think is encouraging, is that I think if we want more Latinx people in, in publishing and elsewhere and in, in sort of these jobs where it's difficult to get in because of the salary, I do think that something as grand as universal health care or forgiving student loans would be a renaissance for the arts for that exact reason because debt is shackling people to not being able to sit down and, and tell the stories of their own lives. My girlfriend who's in the arts said they need to break up the publishing houses and get them out of New York City. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That needs to be distributed around the country. We have to have – Everybody, yeah. everywhere have – there should be affordable places to live where you can be in the publishing industry. Absolutely. And, and these are all connected things because part of the, the same processes by which we have inequity is why places like I think San Francisco and Brooklyn and so forth have become inescapably expensive for people. So my cousins who are half Ecuadorian, half Dominican, grew up in Queens and they now live in New Jersey just because it's unaffordable. They're doing well and they're great and they're happy and I, I very much love them. But when we talk, it's very clear to them. They're like, yeah, we couldn't afford to live here anymore. So it, it's interesting to me that when you have these sort of consolidations of power and wealth, how that sort of – you start to turn into this monoculture, which I think is like a evolutionary biology term when one species <laughs> sort of like overruns everything. And wealth does that. It becomes so concentrated that it makes it impossible for anyone else to participate in storytelling. And so again, like we can open the doors to the publishing industry and I think there are like One World is a great imprint that does that where they're doing amazing things um, with writers of color and, and telling stories that are not the bootstrap stories <laughs> that we've heard for so long. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm publishing my first novel at 40 and, and people are like, oh, it's a little bit older. And I was like, I had debt. I was working 60, 70 hours a week through my 20s and, and most of my 30s. And so I never went and I never got my MFA. And so the conditional thing that would have allowed me to write more work earlier on would have been something like debt-forgiving policies or universal health care. We're talking about a much grander issue because the publishing industry can't solve that. But it would be very encouraging if the publishing industry had adopted, at least in public, because <laughs> we know behind closed doors it's different, but at least sort of adopted of supporting these policies because there's just an enormous – going back to what we were thinking about with history is the record that we're losing by people who want to tell their stories, who are unable to because of material conditions. And so when you have this outrage, it tends to focus on identity. It tends to focus on people's own personal sort of like needs for representation. But I'm a firm believer that representation doesn't solve these issues. 
Solely, solely. Because well, you, st- you, you still have to make the art. You still have to tell the stories. We have to not put everyone on pedestals because someone's working in the publishing industry or because they're a politician if they're like Latinx. That does not necessitate that, that they have my own interests out for them. Their interests might entirely lie with wealth and power, which will discredit those narratives regardless. So the complicated thing to think about is like identity and representation doesn't solve these issues solely. Identity in its way, in its obverse of, of racism, to judge people yeah. on their identity, yeah. uh, to not take individuality in account Correct. Is, is a part of that because that is one of the effects of racism besides the material things Absolutely. is to be assumed to be something just because of your your heritage. Absolutely. And, and I think those are like genetically intertwined and in how they like work to oppress people. So it's like when we have solutions that just look identity or we have solutions that just look at the immediate material needs, it's not going to get us as far as we can as a country. I was thinking with the Monroe Doctrine and, and uh, America, the United States. Uh, I know a lot of people hate when you say America to mean the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they mean the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> but that the United States then oppressing the descendants of Spaniards who oppressed the Correct. people they took over. It's, and, not, it's not so and, easy. <laughs> but Americans need to start studying that model yeah. because then at some point when the Chinese – take over the world and yeah. we are no longer. It's this predominant narrative of empire. Historically, it's this interesting thing. Like empire will not go away. But what has been introduced, I think, since the 1800s – again, I'm not a historian. But what has been introduced since the 1800s, which seems extraordinary to me, is the idea that inequity doesn't have to exist. So regardless of who is the current empire, I think we're going to still be contesting with these same questions. I think – the global model is, you know, if it's the Spanish, if it's America, if it's Portuguese, if it's China, I think the global model of imperial sort of capitalism, like, is what we were contesting with for 400 years. So, like, regardless of the nation, like, the economic model is something that we should think about when we're talking about inequity. And the interesting thing I think about capitalism is that it creates inequity so quickly. It's like this jet fuel as far as its ability to take advantage of disasters like we were talking about early and the nouveau rich, you know, since like we were talking about the French Revolution very briefly, but the nouveau rich that this system seems to create every generation is extraordinary when you look at sort of like the history of global civilizations and like, like jet fuel, it creates inequity. And so we're constantly cycling through these stories of inequity. But like what's new is we have material ways to think about how to fight that and address it. I have such a, and this is just straight up discussion. This isn't even book interview at this point. Uh, but you know, I think when you look at the wealthiest of the wealthy around the world, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the the hundred richest men and two, three women yeah. uh, in that thing, that if you did parse out their money throughout the world, uh-huh. it would not raise everybody's standard of living considerably. Yeah. If, if you just distributed equally yeah. around the world. The problem that we have going in is that in having a capitalistic system and that growth is one of the, yeah. the the prime delivery things for wealth is that we can't sustain the American model Correct. of wealth. The earth can't. Yes, the earth can't. can't yeah. And so to make everyone – lives better, how do we make them yeah. better but not in a way that consumes so many natural resources? Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's such a good question, and especially since we're facing climate change directly and we're looking at the abyss of climate change. It's happening, but also the consequences of it continuing to unfold. I think we have to imagine a very new world, a new new world in which that our lives have meaning not primarily in material 
gain and in total comfort. When you look at the distribution of wealth and things like that, and again, I'm not like a political scientist or economist, but when I look at it from the perspective of, of a novelist and, and someone who taught high school, is that given the conditions of a day-to-day life, I don't think most people want to be uber rich. And we tell those you know, dreamlike stories about like what we would do with wealth. But I think at the end of the day, we want to work a little, to not work 60, 50, 50 hours a week, to work a little, to give to community, to be surrounded by friends and family, to have good health, supported hopefully by something like universal health care. But I think we have to reimagine what that means, especially in the American identity, because if we don't, it's not that we're just talking about some utopia that we're trying to gain because there's going to be complicated sort of societal consequences regardless what other whatever we do as humans. But if we don't, we're very much facing the collapse of modern civilization and what I read one eco-philosopher had said is then we're very much going to enter a stage of neo-medievalism where we're broken apart and modern society as we know it doesn't exist. And I think for the first time in human history, we are looking at like sort of a global ecological and sort of societal collapse if we don't reimagine it. So we're very attached to our new couches every five years and we're very attached to the new phones every two years or one year. But if we don't sort of address that this is excavating the planet, then I think we're in for some sort of catastrophic responses. You can see an America shift from productive economy to a service economy. Yeah. It just makes me think, you know, we are essentially going back to the time of the British aristocracy. Yes. And with their footmen and their scullery maids and everything like that, everyone has Absolutely. built up these services in order to provide to the rich. To the very few. So we can have some type of living. And you can see how that could be added to disaster like a type of neo-medievalism. I don't think that that echo philosopher was wrong entirely. We never know what the future is going to entail. That's very much the fun and the complex challenges with science fiction, right? But I do think there is this reimagining and it's it, it's different than I think when people said, you know, the previous generation, we have to reimagine. You know, people would always joke like, oh, it's hippies. They want a utopia. But like I don't think the new generation wants a utopia. I think they want sustainable life. The things that young activists are asking for are not a utopia. And so when I hear like an older generations or those with wealth dismiss them as they want a utopia and they want like this eco-friendly utopia as you know, the, the silly terms that those in power use, I think the young generation just wants a, a sustainable life for themselves and I think that they deserve it. I've done the best step possible. I'm sorry to insult you but I have not reproduced. <laughs> that, is, that is okay. That is okay. I have, I've taken yeah. one for the team. <laughs> you've, taken, you've taken one for the team. I think too like there's always this philosophical thing with parents is like, well, are we contributing to the problem? Are we not? But I think at the end of the day, like if I was looking at it philosophically, it was like I didn't want capitalism to take me away from the simple fact that I wanted to do something that was just human. <laughs> like I don't even – I have no answers for why I wanted to be a father actually. But I think that's part of the sustainable life. Like can we have these lives that are not – where our labor isn't extracted to the point of exhaustion, where our material needs don't exceed the planet's ability? Hey, uh, we Logan's have, wrong. Logan's wrong. Yes. Yes. Oh, I, well, I, when need, we start, I needed a Logan's run reference. When we start getting ugly, just take us out. <laughs> there, <laughs> this is why science fiction – this is why we need it too. <laughs> Back to the book. Yes, 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 yes. It's been a while since we've been there. Let's go back to your book. There are 
parallels within mm. the lives of these people. You have Saul and uh, Adana's parents being murdered. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, Javier having a lost book and Maxwell yeah, having yeah. a lost book in his life. Benjamin being born on the sea and the yeah. pirate being a man of the sea. Yeah. You have these parallels structured throughout the book as well. Which I think I didn't even recognize until later. But I think just embedding myself in the idea of like parallel universes, like I wonder if that had just come accidentally. But I also sort of had this fascination with the sea and, you know, sort of this like, especially with pirates, like this crossing, right? Like there's these migrants and exiles are always crossing. And so whether it happens 100 years ago or whether it happens right now, you're going to have sort of similar experiences. So the, the Sort of that rhyming <laughs> um, of history is, is I think, narratively fun, but it's also, I think, when you look at the history and when you listen, it's there. So as you said, your first book. Yeah. So how much anticipation, anxiousness, and eagerness do you uh, approach on your second? This parallels the fact that my second child was born five months ago. <laughs> so with the first one and all the excitement, I think it keeps everything pretty grounded when he's crying and just needs to be up at two in the morning. For the second book, I am anxious to get to writing. I'm a slow writer and I'm a slow reader. That's just always how it's been. And so I spent a lot of years researching for the first book and going on tangents in my research. So I have this stack I've accumulated over the past six months to a year of books that I want to start reading for the second one. And I do want to get back to writing. I think most of my anxiety is around being able to get back to writing. I have ideas that I want to see if they work or not. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so much for coming in today. It has been a pleasure and a half and also an hour and a half. In oh, talking. <laughs> such a pleasure. Michael Sapata is the author of The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, which is published by Hanover Square Press, HarperCollins. I'm Stephen Hussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.